0: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Interop Talk and happy holidays. Uh, I'm Dave Castle. I'm Chief Customer Officer at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director at Care Quality. Uh, Joining me today is our usual crew, uh, starting with Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla, uh, practicing family physician for going on three decades now uh, and former Director of Clinical Informatics and Interoperability at Sutter Health. Uh, we also have Jennifer Blumenthal, Director of Product for One Record, now a Milliman and Telescript company, uh, and Devin McGraw, Data Sharing Lead at Invite, uh, Co-Founder of Citizen, and former Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at HHS. Welcome everyone and thank you as always so let's uh let's start off today's uh, episode with uh where we all were uh together, most of us anyway, uh at the uh, at the Sequoia project, care Equality, ehealth exchange, Grand extravaganza in, in San Diego uh, uh a week or so ago. um we were all uh those of us in attendance on on various panels there. uh Jennifer, let's start with you. Uh, you were on a panel, I'll, I'll let you introduce that panel in the same way that you did it at the session, uh, in terms of your longstanding participation in it, uh, but you were on a panel called The Patient is Knocking, uh, and actually one of Devin's colleagues was on that that panel as mm-hmm. well. Um, what, what's, uh, what would you like to share with, with the audience about that panel and just about the direction and the, the things are headed there in, in care quality And to be clear that that panel was, was, I believe in the care quality uh, portion of the meeting. I,
1: I feel like I should give background to our listeners because people are listening to this across platforms and wherever, you know, they're clicking through and finding it. So to what Dave is saying, we were in attendance for the care quality Sequoia annual meeting. And for the past five years, I have sat on a panel and talked about uh, patient access, patient request, now individual access, and talking about kind of the incremental baby steps taken to empower consumers to access their data through care quality. Um, This panel specifically was geared towards a recent implementation guide update that says that patients that updated the implementation guide and added the addition of an IAL 2 workflow and an AEL workflow with a token exchanged um, to secure the attributes of the verified demographics that are passed from an identity proving provider to through the app or individual access service to the responding gateway. And I mean, I got on stage and I told the audience that it was gonna be a little spicy, that I have been talking about the same topic for five years And there hasn't been enough movement for consumers to easily query the network and get a response back for their own data. So what does that mean? That means that today there are um, very few implementers who are responding for if let's say Devin wanted to download one record or sign up for Health Gorilla's individual access services and query for her own data through a service of her choice that she would be able to get back documents, CCDAs, from the uh, care quality implementers. Um, And so what the implementation guide additions asked for is essentially the certified IAL2 vendor. Um, So that's clear, LexisNexis, ID.me, Persona, I'm forgetting people, but anybody that you can find on the certified Kintera list. Um, And then it also calls for this token that needs to be passed in the exchange where the verified demographics of Devon aren't able to be tampered with because what they're trying to avoid is somebody identity proofs, but then you're querying for somebody else's data. So they're really trying to limit the concept of bad actors trying to get their data and abusing the networks. That's a whole nother topic of ex- and I'm not gonna go into it right now. And then it also calls for something called AL, which is in my mind, almost like an MFA workflow that ties the IAL2 event to an MFA type workflow. Um, what we talked about in the stage is this is great, there's an implementation guide update, but we, when the implementation guide was uh, approved by the steering committee, you know something that came up on the steering committee that day was that there should be a pilot that goes along with this IG update. And unfortunately for this pilot, Very few responding gateways have showed up. The only responding gateway um, that showed up at first was CRISP, which is uh, an HIE that represents multiple states, and they were looking to, you know, provide patients access to their data because they're mandated under Cures Act as an actor, as a state HIE, which you can listen to past podcasts, and Devin can chime in about this, and they're here to allow to participate in the pilot. Um, Health Gorilla has also said that they're going to participate as a responding gateway. But the problem that I called out on stage at the Sequoia Project was, that's great that HIE-like or HIE organizations have said that they're going to respond for their patient populations, but where are the EHR vendors who have been participating in, e- in care quality since its start and to present date saying, hey, we're going to participate in this pilot, especially in light of the fact that TEFCA requires um, patient requests. So if you want to prepare for TEFCA, you should be participating in this pilot to prove it out in the cure quality framework so that for the future go-live date, which we're going to talk about, I would expect any QIN and any uh, participating EHR to whatever QIN they choose to be supporting this pilot and testing it with a small group of trusted partners to say, hey, is this working and this is not working? Because what I would hate to see is a spec being adopted for TEFTA that really hasn't been proven out at all within a small group or a group at scale to see, does this work? Because my biggest concern is that um, the IAL2 spec and AL spec with the token that was pushed into the IG was done with such a small group of people and hasn't really had that kind of large scale influence to say, this is actually scalable or not scalable. And it also, there's a lot of other downfalls, but I'm not going to go into all of that. But that was basically the spiciness of the panel. And I'm sure Health Gorilla can uh, provide a link
0: to the original panel so you can watch it for yourself. They um, probably can, assuming oh. that, that <laughs> care quality It's quite I, have a I, lot. I haven't
2: heard that they've posted them yet. but They're uh, quite them, them. So yeah.
1: For editors, you know where to find it.
0: Fair enough. So, and, and, uh, so I may betray my own ignorance here, in which case I've got Three smarter people who can can correct me, but I, I, I there is a difference between what has been proposed for TEFCA and what the Care Quality Guide update was that you were were discussing at that panel. Correct? I think there. Uh,
1: my biggest concern always is I think that the RCE people working on what TEFCA looks like in the squirrel committees are always kind of looking at what's happening at care quality as just an example of what could be done at scale. So what I'm concerned about is something that is kind of make, they're still creating barriers for consumers to get their data out of a group of people who've never actually empowered consumers to get their data. And that's not pointing my fingers at the HR vendors. That's literally the people sitting in those committees being like, this is my opinion on what the standard should look like. Um, these are non representatives of the HR. These are usually people just who live and breathe interop and maybe privacy and security. And there are a lot of failures around the OAuth workflow, just in adoption. And there's already going to be a lot of barriers to adoption with the IL2 workflow, because a consumer has to be able to identity proof successfully. And then there has to, those verified demographics have to be used for a patient match. So there's always the next part of failure is is there a match to the patient within that network or HIE or QHIN, right? So there's no guarantee a consumer is going to get back their data. So the more barriers you put in that IL2 workflow, the more there's going to be a drop off in the consumer being able to actually query for their data and get records back. As opposed to when a covered entity to covered entity exchange happens, I mean, it's just we're seeing the amount of records at scale being exchanged between covered entities. You should see the same amount of adoption for consumers to get their data if they wanted to.
2: And uh, Dave, to your point, my my understanding as well is that the IG that we put through care equality is in fact different than the requirements in the QN technical framework for the IAS queries. That What's
1: the difference?
2: I think the difference is the AL two that, that okay. I, I do not believe that the yeah. TASCA IAS requires AAL2 that, that was included in care quality. Uh, that That's my understanding.
1: Yeah, my my big, this is what I concerned in the committees leading up to the recommendation to the steering committee prior to approval is when you're tying an AAL2 event to an IAL 2 event, which is based off NIST 6300 guidelines that came out a couple of years ago now, I think 2017, 2018, is that, one, you're saying that me, one record by a million Telescript has to contract with a vendor for two net new services. So two pricing models or bundles that I have to then adopt and invest into my application. And I haven't even proven at scale that this is going to work. How about we just start yeah. with IL2 and then we layer in the AL?
2: And I think that's the, the path. I think that's the path we're going to take with Tefka. That's my understanding.
1: And then my other issue... Go ahead, Jen. My other issue is with the token. So the token was there for security reasons, which I understood. But then there's liberties taken by the vendors on how long the token will exist for. And that's going to be by vendor their choice on the token expiration. So we're already adding in these two net new requirements. And by adding in these two net new requirements... We're already creating a friction for something that doesn't even have, there's nobody responding to patient access. So why don't we just get a couple of people to respond in a closed pilot? Because it's not like anyone can just join the pilot. You have to be a current implementer of care quality. That means you have to have signed the trust framework. I am really on my soapbox. I'm coming down now. It's all you, Devin.
3: Well, it just, I really appreciate the details on this because I, I wasn't able to go to San Diego. um, And so I kind of missed all of this and I love that it was spicy because at different occasions, I myself have said, although not nearly in that level of really good detail, we are piling up the requirements so high for this, that we're making it really hard for anybody to be able to do this. And, and on the one level, there's sort of like the the scariness of this for the data sources that are connected into these networks. These are not HIPAA covered uh, entities. How do we know the patient hasn't been spoofed? But you know, just to go through an IAL2 identity proofing process is itself not an easy thing. No, we have pretty considerable drop-off for mm-hmm. patients to be able to do that. We do the subsequent, um, um, you know, sort of something that you have, right? A, something that is sent to your phone, like a code, and then you put it back. It's not certified, that portion. So under, you know, the current specs, we can't use it. We would have to find another solution for that piece in order to essentially have something certified that, that frankly, is an interaction that happens on the internet every day where people prove who they are in terms of something that is sent to something that you have, your cell phone. So people are getting wrapped around the axle on this stuff and wedded to solutions that I totally agree with you have not been tested as to whether they work. And there's no required response back yet.
1: And there's one more piece to this. Also, the requirements to add this, a lot of the implementers on Care Quality have said, I don't necessarily need this. So I might not even, like, you could query me and send me all of this. And I don't even, I might not require you to send it. So it's saying half the organizations have to build it and have this huge barrier. And then the other half is saying, yeah, I want it. And the, okay, maybe it's not half. I'm messing up my pie. But half has to do it. And then the other side, there are some people who will re- require it and some people who won't. So there's not even consistency on the responding side. So that means you'll have certain vendors who say you must send this to me, and the other vendors say we don't care about that, and that creates all this inconsistency where we have a higher lift to build, and the other side is choosing at what investment they want to build to, and they're not even responding. So to me, it's, it's too early to implement something like this.
2: So, One more, go ahead.
1: Is this ties back to fire at scale? So we're already seeing in the you know, open developer ecosystem with the OAuth workflow, a lot of interpretation around what does patient authorization mean. So we're seeing with the much smaller niche EHRs, this concept of patient authorization means a patient must go to their provider, get their provider to authorize the third-party app before the third-party app can go through, receive a client credential and secret in order to just present the authorization screen, which is essentially username and password in their application for a user to go through that three-legged OAuth workflow where a token is being exchanged and there is, um, there's several tokens being exchanged. So for me, I'm already seeing just a barrier with an OAuth workflow that is mandated under law. It has very specific requirements. Um, It's built into the um, ONC certification G10 updates, and then we have this very loose requirement that isn't built into law and that is, you know, decided by committee and it's supposed to be the bedrock for, you know, the future of like national exchange? I don't think so. It's not baked for me to really get behind it. So Fox done.
2: I was just going to say, despite all of that and all of these challenges that we've been facing for years, my understanding, and you mentioned Chris in talking to the folks from CRISP is that they are ready today to respond to care quality patient queries.
1: And I'm most optimistic around HIEs doing this. And I called this out on stage. This a lot of it has to do with Devin's work and um, Citizen slash Invitae's work around educating HIEs on their responsibility under the law, under Cures Act and being actors as information blockers. So I think HIEs are. Way more primed to actually be responding gateways. However, most of the HIEs are not participants of Care Quality; they're participants of the eHealth Exchange. So that means that HIEs have to sign up to participate on Care Quality to be part of this pilot, or they have to allow. I don't know, Devin. Are you acting as a gateway in this pilot? I I don't think I ever asked that question.
3: I don't no. think so. Um, I mean, I. I think there were some readiness issues from a tech side on our end that we weren't necessarily going to make it from a timing perspective, but we were definitely, you know, depending on how long it lasts could end up, um, you know, still participating because we're very interested obviously in helping to facilitate all of this.
1: And as a developer, it would actually be easier for me to just work directly with Devin outside of care quality and connect to the gateway that, her Cures Act gateway for the HIVs that she signed up or connect directly to CRISP or connect directly to Health Gorilla, right? So there's a lot of what I consider investment and technical investment or technical infrastructure that I need to invest in in order to participate in the pilot that is to a very specific spec to what we started this, Steven might not make it into TEFCA. That is why I was spicy on the panel.
2: Yeah, and then the other thing <laughs> that I was going to add, Jen, is you know looking ahead to Tefka, you know, and, and it's it's the last bit of November. Uh, Mickey and company continue to say that they think Tefka is going to be going live next month, um, and we know that individual access service uh, is a required purpose of of a query and a required response, at least on the part of the QHins. So um so the idea being that that we'd have the opportunity to see what happens with IAS once Tefka goes live. Yeah. But hey but hey, but wait hey a Steven minute. let's well, go ahead go go ahead
3: David. Well, I was going to say I, unless something has changed and it very well may have that uh, I, that I missed a development. My understanding is that the TEFCA rollout for individual access is a is a um um facilitated fire query. So you don't get data back, you get or on non-facilitated, non-brokered, you get fire endpoints that you can then connect to. So it's almost like just so record locators. The
2: fire roadmap are two separate things.
3: I think we should dive yeah. into
1: this because there's a lot of confusion around this.
3: Yeah. I mean, I get that the fire roadmap is a separate thing, but for a while, Mickey was talking about how he did not see how individual access would work in TEFCA initially. Without running it back through the portals, and that what would be delivered to apps and through Tefka would be, oh, here are the fire endpoints for all the data that you need to search for for your patient. Now go connect to the to all of them. So, Devin, this is this is how how
1: I've interpreted what you're talking about is that there is a gray area in the the last version of Tefka that allows for you know, the QHs are going to implement the ability for individual access services to their participants. But then participants could potentially opt out of responding. And so right. I think, and I don't want to put words in the government's mouth, but I think what what you just said is the assumption is, hey, you can support individual access via the fire at Scale or kind fire of- roadmap via an OAuth workflow which to me is just like, well, why would you join a QHIN and do all that when you can do it in the open developer ecosystem? Because there's so many other reasons, right? But it's really, you know, this is actually kind of cool, but, but you don't know beyond, beyond the path is there was a patient access breakout and a big group showed up at the patient access breakout. And there was a big discussion that I was a little in and out of because we were supporting a puppy playtime. So I was more excited about the puppies, unfortunately, than <laughs> but, We it was really cute, but the um, the thing that was kind of coming up, what I heard in that patient access breakout is, yes, it's going to come down to the participant level. So Hmm. participants who join a QN who need to respond to patient requests covered entities, it's going to be the same thing that you're experiencing with HIEs. Is my state or local policy? preventing me from doing it or do i find under the seven exceptions a reason to say i can't do this um security whatever it is and so i think that's going to really tell the future of this i don't know how much of the provider penalties that are proposed will count for this kind of workflow because i haven't read it but like future rulemaking should probably take into account provider penalties plus tafka unless That just doesn't happen and it's just gonna be fire and OAuth and we live with Portolitis and for the next 10 years and we won't even have iPhones in the future because we're gonna go back to these like little beeper device things and no more screen. And then I don't know.
2: You made a good point. So well, sorry, hang on,
0: Steven. There's 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 a lot to unpack there, but I do want to circle back to to one thing. I think we we were we were mixing two concepts there. We were mixing, I think, the technical mechanism. Slash right. standard through which a an IAS query would occur with the policy elements around whether it was required to be responded to. Um, so the the when when hopefully we all are are live on TEFCA here and we can drop the candidate from the the the, the candidate Q-hin, uh phraseology that we use. Mm-hmm. I, The expectation would be that we, as a QHIN, Health Gorilla, for example, as a still a Canada QHIN today, uh, but once once a QHIN would have to support our participants in uh, responding to IAS queries via the IHE protocols. So, care quality style, demographics queries, document exchange, just in support of IAS, not treatment. Um, and then there's a question there as to okay to to Jennifer's point, what what additional wrinkles might there be there in terms of folks' interpretation of states and local policies and and the the information blocking exceptions, um, but then there's a second question of okay how does how or does this change once the fire roadmap is, once we're further down the fire roadmap and and we have fire in the Tufka ecosystem. Um, and and uh, this isn't limited to IAS but I I agree with you Devin I think we are more likely to have that that sort of record locator style first uh is is the sense that I have which to be clear I I actually think does add value um uh, in terms of of having the Qhan ecosystem point out to you where records reside and then you can and by the way here's the uh URLs at which you can go grab the fire resources. But you still um, need
1: to authenticate against multiple fire servers.
0: Yes. For and and I was I was not to split hairs, but I was speaking there a little more generally, including for treatment purposes and payment and operations, the where fire would be used in in that uh, in those modes as well.
1: For patient Purposes, you'd still have to authenticate. For what Dave just touched upon, covered entity to covered entity exchange, you would have a way to use an RLS to locate the fires, the fire servers, and that kind of OAuth exchange, whether it's a two legged OAuth exchange or a three legged OAuth exchange. Three legged OAuth exchange is going to be the patient workflow, the other two are where there's not a consumer. Workflow. But to I still think that. We are in the early innings and I'm hoping the more people talk about this kind of stuff in detail, like there's very few people in the country who really know this stuff as well as we do, that the conversations internally and people who decide to be participants of QNs really think about how do they want to support their patient and member populations. And to me, it's a bad PR move to be building the cellular networks of healthcare and you don't let consumers on the network.
2: So, well, so Jen, it was yeah, if, I may, ahead, if I may, I was trying to get back to a point you made earlier, which is that the it seems that the lowest hanging fruit in terms of finding responders to the IAS queries, maybe the HIEs themselves, based on the work that Devin and others have done. And as we said, Chris, a major, very successful large HIE, you know, has already really stepped up to the plate with regard to the care quality. Patient queries, you know, and again, I believe today is actually ready to respond if they can get any um, fit, fitting the Ig with the IL2, the AL2. But Go there Chris. are a number there are a number of QHIN candidates that we hope will be QHINs in the coming month uh, that represent HIEs. You you mentioned eHealth Exchange. Kanza, Health Gorilla, you know, all have HIEs as network participants. And all of whom could, you know, theoretically make those HIE participants available and able to respond to IAS queries. So to me, I see that as the greatest opportunity in early days of QHIN IAS exchange before we get to fire, before we do, you know, OAuth on fire. To, to, if we have willing HIEs who are trying to meet their obligations as information blocking actors to, to make that data available via a, a TEFCA I, IAS query. Devin, were you shaking your head, yeah, head it, to make your hair look good? I,
3: I no, heard... I, I was just thinking, well, I was just thinking of a couple of things. One is that we have built a completely different trust model in the gateway that has, nothing to do with the exchange of tokens or anything of that nature we do require there's a set of agreements it's very customary to how hie's build their infrastructure for exchange today which is based on you sign an agreement you agree to abide by the rules if you don't abide by the rules you can get kicked out of the network um but it's, you know, we vet every app to make sure that they have a process in place to identity proof, to at least identity proof that meets the elements of IAL2, that they get consent from their users in some way to query for their records so that the patient isn't surprised to see information in their account that they didn't necessarily go tell that app to go get. And then the third thing is... Um, you know, signing agreements to kind of abide by the rules around, you know, sort of whether they're traffic limitations or things of that nature. So there's a vetting process associated with that. Each of the HIEs that signs up to the gateway is on board with that as a methodology for exchange. And frankly, it's just much simpler and, and is in the process of being, you know, tested in the wild today. So, so while there is this sort of, Opportunity under both TEFCA, TEFCA and Curie Quality for HIEs to exchange that way. And that's definitely the way that CRISP has decided to go. There are very different models being pursued for how, how this happens. And, and I think it really begs the question about what's the best way to facilitate the trust that's needed in order for the information to flow without all these hurdles. It, you know, we, we've sort of built this kind of technical infrastructure in the care quality spec that frankly again as as Jennifer pointed out has not been tested yet and 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 frankly may be really difficult when there are other ways to get get at this in terms of you know sort of vetting the participants in a way that doesn't allow for i don't know any other way to interlopers or spoofers or or you know that you you have trusted people on all sides of the of the transaction that have have been through some sort of vetting um it's something that we resisted for a while on the app side in terms of like you shouldn't be able to make a judgment call about whether an app can connect into your your um fire um fire apis if they've otherwise met all of the specs but but for for this type of network exchange where we're not relying on on oauth and and the fire apis we just don't have the same kind of sort of trusted infrastructure for this. And yet we're assuming that we can get this done through a set of technical obstacles that that I've always thought, like, first of all, it seemed like it was forever being added to in terms of sort of what was expected. And second of all, is, is untested. I do want to say one we, thing. Get, we get We get data every day from health information management departments based mostly on our reputation and the fact that we ID proof, proof people, that's it. And we get a lot of data for our users. It doesn't have to
1: be this hard. I I think that's an important point that Devin's making is like, when I said that there was a, you know, a new implementation guide out, like Dave, technically There's always been an implementation guide in care quality to support patient access. I called this out on stage. A nice gentleman named Eric Kaplan wrote the original spec. It's just, it's always been there. People don't respond. And to what Devin's saying is there's this much higher level of trust that people who want to participate in care quality have to, it's not even trust. The level I don't even know how to explain it I don't I don't have a word for it I don't like well it, it, it isn't ahead.
0: it isn't even a lack of trust I don't think it's it, it, and and you it's know I'll maybe say liability. one of the oops sorry
1: it's the cost of the liability it's the it's the level of risk that organizations who are responding are willing to take on or if they expose the wrong data to a non-covered entity through a third-party application that is the that is what we are talking about. And I understand that organizations do not want that risk. And I, that is something I won't point fingers at because that is a big deal. And I don't want to see healthcare organizations shut down because we need healthcare organizations in this country. We need doctors. We do not want organizations to have those kinds of risks, but there has to be some sort of way for consumers to get their data. And if it's through Devin, then she's the vehicle.
0: Well, well, and I think, you know, whether me. <laughs> <laughs> whether Devin has to single handedly solve this problem or not is is maybe a different different story. But I think there's there's a fascinating angle to to all of this that we've kind of touched on, but but haven't delved all the way into, which is is the role of, of HIEs, and and it's it's just so interesting because you know back in the the very early days of care quality, HIEs were the ones that were very hesitant. And, and they were the ones who were kind of holding back and, and not quite sure what was going on. And now it's it's like the script has flipped entirely. HIEs are the ones that are out there, you know, pushing the boundaries and really doing a lot of, of good to advance interoperability. And it's the EHR vendors who had originally started uh, the sharing through care quality who are in some cases, and Jen, you look like you disagree, but, yeah, but are the ones student. who are, are more of an obstacle. The HIEs were
1: the only ones who allowed us we did care quality then commonwealth and then we did uh we integrated to a rio within new york and that they were the only implementation that we did prior to our fire integrations that allowed us to do an identity proofing workflow query and pull back data and it was successful in my personal one record i have records from my health system from that i was able to pull from one of the rios in new york for me at the time, it was a question of cost. I would have to integrate to so many HIEs and I figured how much each of those costs would be. And just going through the contracting, the management, like I wanted to sign one contract. I wanted to connect to one network. And that wasn't an option. The difference with FIRE is FIRE was free and there was a law right and I could move quickly. So for me, it was always a question of time and speed and cost, right?
2: But maybe, maybe those HIEs enabled through TEFCA connectivity, really are going to become those health data utilities that can support individual access. Yeah, Uh, I do. I don't think think it's published yet but uh, Civitas, you know, uh, has been collaborating with ONC and UCSF and then do they did a recent survey of their participants. And, you know, I I heard about that this week and a lot more HIEs are, you know, are willing to say in a survey that they're planning to connect to TEFCA than we heard even at the Civitas meeting a few months ago. You know, that that meeting, I think, triggered a lot of discussion and a lot of awareness that this is not this is not an either or, you know, the HDU model, the the national the network and framework model, that, that these are gonna come together, you know? And again, maybe that's my Pollyanna speaking here, but but I think that's where, what we're gonna see, that we're gonna see individual individuals being able to query the HIEs for their data and leveraging the TEFCA framework and directory to be able to find that. I think
1: to what Dave's saying and to what um, Steven's saying is, I also heard similar things at Civitas, but Dave, to back in the day, like cure quality kind of looks like a competitor to HIEs. So that's probably a reason why HIEs are kind of a little skeptical of cure quality.
0: Oh, no, that's that's absolutely completely fair. I wasn't saying I didn't understand where they were coming from at the time. I did understand where they were coming from at the time. You know, I I I thought then, and I think now that there's there's a path for for HIEs to to leverage whether it's care quality or TEFCA as as a, a big part of a value proposition for their members. And, uh, and, excited- and oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: What I'm excited about HIEs participating, whether patient access or TEFCA or whatever is that HIEs represent local, right? So there are going to be physicians represented in HIEs that, hey, I don't think their fire APIs are operational. They might have certified via their EHR, but is that a really operational API? Is it ready for me to call it via the but well, Probably not, because that's what I've seen in the market so far. And sometimes, this is what I don't know, and I'd love somebody to answer this. Are there providers represented in state HIEs that are using non-certified technology that you can actually get, I can get my data from, right? Like my provider just got an EHR last year, I know. So is my data in that state HIE? I'm super curious to see that. This is gonna be, this is only the things that I think about.
2: I, well, but what you're saying <laughs> is for some of those smaller, you know, less well-funded providers, that that data they could be pouring that into the HIE. It could be accessible there, even though you couldn't get it through a direct query of their EHR.
1: Yeah, like because what I found is a lot of the uh EHR vendors in the and I'm talking about the smaller niche specialty EHRs, they certified, but
0: no, it doesn't mean anything's actually available.
1: Exactly. It doesn't work. And yeah. also the question of how they map. Fire is two things. It's a standard and it's content, right? Did they properly map their data to USCDI to be able to be called via that fire API? These are all the things that are going to unravel over the next couple of years. Very exciting.
3: <laughs> you know I, what? You know one thing. I'm sorry, Jennifer. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You know one thing that does occur to me. So, you know, what are the motivations for HIEs to come to the to to you know, sort of really be excited and enthusiastic about connecting to patients. I, I think there are multiple motivations, one one being they are a little bit closer to their communities and, and do see themselves as health data utilities, so this is another sort of piece of that role. In some cases, the, they have, they're under state expectations to share data with patients. That was certainly true in New York when the shiny adopted a set of policies around patient access, um, but information blocking is definitely playing a role they you know for a long time there were just rules and there was no you know enforcement rule now there's an enforcement rule they're not the only ones on the hook the other actor covered by the same set of penalties is certified EHRs so you know which frankly have both an HIE component to them with respect to the network services that they provide to their customers as well as their role as a certified EHR vendor, and I think that if they think that their information blocking obligations stop at offering the Fire API, I don't read the rule that way. Uh, so,
0: I, I, I want to circle back to that, but you know, credit where due. Right. I did want to make make this point earlier. We I did learn something at at the conference uh, last week, week and a half, whatever it was. Um, uh, that Commonwealth, for example, stated that they were now seeing, I think, roughly eighteen percent, which is is not super high, but is higher than I thought it was in, in terms of of their response rates. And a big part of that, I think, is our friends at Meditech actually, who who have in fact rolled out uh, responses in Commonwealth to patient uh, queries. Uh, so yeah. you know, credit we're due to to Meditech on that front, and, and they may not be the only ones in Commonwealth.
1: Uh, it's mostly Meditech. Meditech makes up the bulk of that number. So go Meditech. Uh, they also their Fire APIs work as expected, which is great. Um, so I think Meditech gets a gold star on effort. Um, the they make up the bulk of that percentage.
2: And and what they're doing, just so I'm clear, is a patient can query Meditech using Fire queries. No. Oh.
0: Well, they well, can they can do that too, presumably, yeah. but but they will also respond to a Commonwealth query, yeah. just as you would do for treatment in Commonwealth. But they will respond for IAS as well, or for whatever Commonwealth calls it, but IAS essentially as well.
1: It's a document based query. You're, you're it's it's they they just flipped it on in the management portal. They will respond because what happens right now is when you query, you you'll get back in the code. It'll be like purpose of you know you know i can actually see it because i've seen this in the code it was say uh, you know request denied purpose of use so like for everybody else you're going to see in the code request denied purpose of use patient request and there's when you query you're going to get documents back because they've enabled it like that is literally it's literally like switch
2: like just flip the switch let's do it and they have ias providers on the commonwealth network that are sending those requests. Well, Commonwealth,
1: because I worked on this committee to approve it, Change Healthcare is, you know, the spec for, you know, what they wanted from an IL-2 vendor influenced what came over to care quality as well. So basically if you, you know, are a Commonwealth member and you are, you have, there's some contractual elements to this, but you've signed, the documents and you're going to query for a patient request and you have an IL-2 vendor and you've done your, you you know, the underlying service, vendor, service provider has certified it and said, yeah, this looks good, um, you can query for a patient request and Meditech is responding. And, you know, the, but then you still
2: the have... IL2, the IL-2 vendors, the, I mean, the, the IAS vendors themselves are Commonwealth network participants.
1: Yeah, there's just one, the there's one thing here is the person has to be enrolled in the Commonwealth network. So like I, Jennifer Blumenthal, went to a Meditech site and that Meditech site enrolled me into Commonwealth. So even though that Meditech site is participating, if my site didn't enroll me, they're not going to get a match because I'm not enrolled in the Commonwealth network. There's this whole linking thing, which is going to change as they Move to being a QHIN, but um, so there is still that other variable, which not a lot of people talk about because there's a difference between the site being enabled and then the person being enrolled, which is different from how care quality works um, because there's no underlying infrastructure there. And so it's more of just, you know, a directory and, and, and a framework for how to exchange data.
2: But if I, as a patient, went to one record, set up an account for myself, One record is a Commonwealth participant. Can I send, and if I've got data over at Meditech, I as a one record customer, I can send a query and expect to get data back from Meditech into my one record. If you were enrolled
1: by that site. So like, it's very similar to HIEs. Like in New York, there's all this paperwork that you have to sign on the clipboard that says, hey, can we opt you into, you know, HealthX or into Rochester, Rio. So if you didn't, do that or whatever the policies there are for so there's the an opt-in
2: at the at the site at the, yeah,
1: so the only variable is if you're not enrolled in commonwealth then the data still might not be available so there's always no matter the data source there are these variables so whenever somebody says they've solved interoperability and there's a silver bullet i'm like
3: Liar.
2: <laughs> but what is the 18- anybody who says
3: that has never tried. Yeah. <laughs>
2: what what's the numerator denominator on that 18% then?
1: Of the patients enrolled, I don't know if I've ever looked at it. I'm not even sure. I'm not sure they track that. I'd have to go ask Commonwealth. No, I meant to
2: say them. though that Dave, you said that Commonwealth said there was an 18% response rate. Well,
0: oh. response rate, maybe, let's maybe be careful. I think right. 18% of their participant share it's will, will like, respond.
1: It's whatever the, 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 the denominator, like, I'm just making it up. Let's say it's like 50,000 sites. I That's not the number. Then that whatever the beta tech sites are is, is the numerator.
2: Okay. Okay. Got it. The yeah and and, and right.
1: I don't somebody Google it off the website right now. i I can't remember
0: <laughs> but but I think you know the if you think about that from Commonwealth alone and then you think about where in some geographies such as Maryland and other places where where crisp operates and and you know others like Kanza who are are similarly advanced, um the the response rates for patients. Um may may for for document queries and, and kind of where, where we always try to we we say like we'd love to get patients parity with what we have in the treatment realm. We're not there, but I think we're closer than we thought maybe we were. Mm-hmm. Uh at least once once some of these these HIEs are fully online, and maybe not all of them are fully online yet.
1: I think coverage-wise, like if I if I would make a bet that this is still gonna be a very low success rate for an individual to pick an app of their choice and get their data. Because I can just think about how many unique fire endpoints we have and, you know, what that represents from a coverage perspective versus what's represented in the current responding gateways, whether Care Quality or Commonwealth. So like it's still gonna be a really high failure rate when you think about they have to make it through identity proofing. And then either the Care quality has to have responding gateways, sites that are responding, or Commonwealth has to have responding gateways plus patient enrolled, right? So where we are today is where I wish we were in 2016. Um, so great for anyone who's just entering into this, you're you're entering at the right moment. From a coverage perspective perspective, like if we had COVID again and you needed to get your vaccination data, we haven't really reached the needle. Fair I'm, enough. I'm, I'm a harsh critic. I, you know, I I, want to, I don't want to sugarcoat things. I want people to know the reality of the world we live in. Yeah, and that should motivate people to do better.
0: No, I, I exactly. Agree. I want, I don't want to sugarcoat it either. Um, all right. Let's let's. Uh, we we mentioned information blocking disincentives. I think I think Devin, you you mentioned this. Uh, in in passing. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on on what has has come out uh, recently and how we think that's going to complement the the OIG penalties? How uh, it, it might further the crusade against information blocking?
3: <laughs> well, we have, you know if you unless you've been under a rock for the past few weeks, you know that um, the Department of Health and Human Services released their proposed. Rules for how they for providers who are found to be information blocking who get referred for appropriate disincentives like what do those disincentives look like? HHS proposed it. This was a rule that ONC wrote, but with the cooperation of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as those payment incentives really come out of that um, that office agency with it within HHS. ONC doesn't really have any. Penalty authority around disincentives for um, providers. So you know there was a really good summary of this that was provided at the at the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee that Stephen and I both sit on, and and so for a lot of those details, I would refer folks to that recording um, and the slide decks that were shared there because it's absolutely fantastic. But the, but in a nutshell, essentially they they have tied the disincentives interoperability payment incentive programs um, as well as accountable care organizations um, but if that's a subset of the providers who are covered by the information blocking rules, a lot of questions that have come up about just how effective those disincentives are going to be so, you know, if we can go into some detail if you want, there's there's a lot to be said here and we're in an open public comment period so it's commenting on them it's a a nice nice maybe that's not the word I want it's a start right we didn't have anything at all for a while now we have these to comment on it it leaves huge swaths of providers who are subject to the information blocking rules out it's not clear that that's terribly fair for those who are in Um, so it's a little bit of a job half done um, but you got to start somewhere
2: yeah, I I really so- agree, Devin. That it is it is a good start. Uh, but as you say, I mean, it uses the promoting interoperability program where basically if you're a provider and you're found to be an information blocker and you would otherwise be getting a uh, Promoting Interoperability incentive, that you would lose that. You would not be considered uh, a meaningful EHR user for the calendar year that you were found to be information blocking. Then there's the the MIPS Quality Payment Program, so um, that the eligible clinician um, would uh, would have a disincentive in that program as well. you know, and then the third one was the Medicare shared savings program, uh, where the the providers found not to be meaningful users would lose out in that one as as well. so those those were the major three major disincentives that were proposed. Um, obviously, we're we're running out of time here, uh, and I think it would be good to come back. You know, the next time we we meet, actually, the next time we meet, we are going to have a special guest who was also part of the high tech, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll work at a provider organization, and we'll have plenty to say about that. I don't know, Dave, if you want to spear yeah. on that. Who's our special guest?
0: Uh, Stephen, I think you, you and and Gina are ahead I'm of me. I'm willing to You're... say
2: it. Yeah, we're, we're we're expecting to have Aaron Mary join us uh, oh, in hi. in Devon's place yeah. uh, in January.
1: Oh, yay!
3: Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that'll be really interesting. I'll definitely be looking at the recording.
2: <laughs>
0: Excellent. Well, we'll have at least one viewer uh but uh <laughs> but <laughs> th- thanks everyone and and you know there's there's so much obviously that we can can cover we can say more about uh about information blocking obviously we can talk about california's efforts uh in 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 going a somewhat different direction than the federal government has gone and obviously we'll we'll know more about uh tefco worlds uh by the time we next convene as well uh so that's looking forward to that. I like
3: that. <laughs> I, the, I like that expression. It sounds like like western world or some sort of futuristic uh sci-fi place. Anyway,
1: what are California things again. The California Q-hens, what are they called?
0: q And
3: they're,
2: they're not, not really the same as q that, like... yeah, they are
0: not the same as Q-Hens, But Q-Hens, we
1: can I-O's and hies. Oh my, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. All right, with that, uh, thanks as always to Devin, Jennifer, and Stephen, and uh, we will see you next time. Take care.